This, huh? Right there. Nice. <laughs> if you know me well, you know I'm a little anal about putting it right on that black thing. <laughs> so we're just gonna not, we're gonna pretend the white thing is not here today. Or the black thing, excuse me, so. Um, right now, uh, if you're, you were here last week, I, I told you we were doing a thing called March to Wisdom. Instead of March Madness, we had a thing. If you wanted to join me and my family and a few others of us, we're going through the book of Proverbs every day, uh, whatever the date of the month is, we're going to be talking about or, or thinking about that particular week. I'll get it right. The C? I, I need another sheet of paper. It's not a little bit covered. Um, we're going to talk about that chapter. We're thinking about I'm on, a, on my blog. You can see it in the on-ramp little blurb there. And uh, I have enjoyed this. This has been, I'm all, I know we're only five days into it. But chapter four has probably one of the most significant verses in all of Proverbs that I just want to share with you that, and every week I'm going to give you a little march to wisdom thing that's going through me. So this is free. You don't have to pay for this. This is just an additional thing for free. Proverbs 4.23. Anyone? Proverbs 4.23? Yeah, it's up there, you bunch of... <laughs> Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Now, uh, I had to, had to do... I've memorized this verse, I don't know, when I was a wee lad, probably 18, 19, something like that. And, uh, yeah, you're laughing. Uh, 18, 19, and I remember just how important this verse was to me, but I don't really know if I know what a wellspring was until this, this morning. It, it really, I looked it up in the dictionary, and it basically means a source of continual supply. In other words, I mean, that's kind of what I thought it was, but it, it's this idea of a spring coming out of a well that just constantly floods out. The verse says, guard your heart, because it's the wellspring of your life. Guard it, though. Let me just uh, encourage those of you who are, uh, this is why I memorized this verse. Those of you who are single, guard your heart because it's the wellspring of life. Do not settle for anybody. Do not even settle for another Christian. Want a godly person. I had, I had three things on my list, and I'm not going to tell you my list, but, but one of them was that they loved Jesus more than I did. And that is very true. Now I know more theology and I can parse Greek verbs and all that kind of thing. But bottom line, when we're in trouble, Carol says, let's pray. And I'm thinking, let's parse the verb or something. And she's, she says, let's just ask Jesus. So ask someone who loves Jesus. Don't settle. That's one thing. Another thing, guard your heart. There's any unforgiveness or bitterness in your life. I've met people who are 80 and bitter. They didn't just wake up when they were 79 and say, I'm going to be bitter. They started back when they were 18 or 19 and then guard their heart. You got bitterness or, or anger or, or unforgiveness going on? Whew, let it go. Let it go. Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. All right, enough of, of, enough of that. We're in a series right now. If you're new to us, uh, we're in a series in the book of John. We're in the second part. We're, we've broken John up into, I think it's going to work out to be three parts. Uh, the third part is going to be the last half of the book, which is the last week of Christ's earthly life. So the first uh, 12 chapters are just uh, his whole ministry before that point, but the last 
half of the book will be his, uh, his final week. We already looked at the first part, which is kind of an introduction. Right now we're looking at this part where Jesus is, is unfolding who he is. This week, we're going to have kind of a special treat for you, huh? Not just the wisdom thing, but you get a special treat. In the book of John, there are seven signs. They're called that. Seven signs in the book of John. And we're going to look at the first of them. I'm going to list them all up here. You can see them. There's water to wine. Today we're going to look at Jesus turning water into wine. All right. Then there's the healing of the nobleman's son. There's the healing of this man by the pool in John chapter 5. In John chapter uh, 6, he feeds the 5,000. He walks on water. In John chapter 9, it's going to rock the religious world, but Jesus is going to heal a man who was born blind. He's going to be able to see. That is going to be a major healing that is going to uh, rock the religious world. We're going to see that all the way through until we get to chapter 11, which is the raising of Lazarus. These are the seven signs in the book of John. Of course, Jesus' death and resurrection, of course, is, is an is a, a indication, of course, of who he is. But these signs are what, what uh, when John wants to pick, and he picks different ones than the other gospel writers, how to prove that Jesus is the Christ. This important sign, this first one, the changing of water to wine, artists have for centuries put up different things of how it could have possibly been. Of course, there was no Kodak back then, so we don't know exactly what it was. Uh, it happens at, we'll see in just a minute, it happens at a wedding, and so there's some festivities taking place, there's some pots, we're going to see about that, uh, and there's some wine, and they run out, and they end up needing more wine, and Jesus changed water to wine to give the basic. And this whole, throughout, throughout history, this has been a, a major deal. But in fact, it's even a phrase. People have used just the phrase. What, are you going to change water in, into wine? You know, you probably have heard that phrase. It's a common phrase, even if you don't know anything about this, this passage. In later years, recent years, uh, some scholars have said that it wasn't a miracle. Jesus didn't actually change uh, wine, or excuse me, water into wine. It was just kind of a joke. I mean, it, it, it just was kind of a, a thing. And we'll take a look and see how absolutely ludicrous that is. But if I forget, I forgot to write that down. Just make sure we, there we go. There we go. The wine joke. Yeah. People have said, no, 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 this is not a, this is not a uh, miracle. This is just an inside joke that Jesus has with this master of ceremonies. And we'll, we'll see how uh, ridiculous that is. Okay, let's take a look at the setting of the first sign. That this, this, how this is all going to take place. <clears throat> John chapter 2. So if you have a Bible with you or if you've got one of those neat little uh, Gospel of John booklets that we're giving out here, there should be still in your pew. We probably need to replenish the pews here. But if you want one of those, you can even take one home and use it to enjoy the Gospel of John with. Um, setting of the first sign, John chapter 2. Huh? It only took us 15 weeks, but we finally got to chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Now, let's just stop there for a second. Let's just kind of look at this. On the third day. Now, if you've been following on in John chapter 1, you remember there's this week that's going on. It happens in, I believe, in John 1, 19, where it starts. And John is interrogated. Remember that? And just for the sake of argument, we're calling it Monday. We don't know if this is the way it was or not. Well, we think it is. But we don't. We have no idea. Monday, John the Baptist gets interrogated by these religious leaders. Are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? Who are you? What are you doing? That whole thing. Because he's got this major megachurch thing happening out there on the Jordan River. 
And it's like, whoa, this is pretty freaky. John, no training. Uh, you, didn't get, you didn't get the endorsement by us, and yet he's out there causing this stir. So these guys send these, uh, this religious lures send people out there to check out who John the Baptist is. That's Monday. Tuesday, John the Baptist says to this group, as Jesus walks by, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he talks about the importance of the Lamb of God. On Wednesday of that week, Jesus passes by again. This time, John the Baptist is just with two of his disciples. And he says to them, look, the Lamb of God, saying, leave me and go after him. Those two disciples follow after Jesus, kind of tragging, trailing behind him, kind of like a lost puppy dog or something. Jesus turns around and says, what up, homie? And, and well, no, turns up towards them. Isn't that funny when old guys try to say things that make them sound like they're <laughs> hip or something? <laughs> What's happening? Uh, anyway, turns around and says, what do you want? What, do, what are you seeking? And they, the, I think it's a great line. It's my favorite line so far in the book of John. They say, uh, where are you staying? <laughs> There's a lot of this in the book of John, by the way. It makes, you kinda, it makes you pause and scratch your head. In other words, they're too uncomfortable to say, well, we want to follow you. We want to hang out with you. We'd love to go to your house to play. It doesn't say that. He says, where are you staying? Jesus says, come with me and I'll show you. And they get to hang out with Jesus. We think that there's an evening that passes there. Possibly not, but I think it does. That there's an evening that passes there and, uh, and Andrew goes and gets Peter. And that's the next day. So that'd be Wednesday and Thursday. Friday, if you remember from last week, is when Jesus goes and finds Philip. And Philip finds Nathaniel, And they've got now up to six of the disciples. At least six that we've heard about. Okay. On the third day, this is now, Friday would have been the first day. That's the way they counted. Saturday would have been the Sabbath. See how nicely this works? Can't write about anything on the Sabbath. Sunday would have been this, this wedding day, huh? Third day. One, two, three. That's the way they counted. Okay. A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciple had also been invited to the wedding. Now, you need to know a little bit about weddings before this to make any sense to you whatsoever. Wedding, uh, in that culture was a lot different than our deal. Our deal, you come to the wedding at 3 o'clock, you can walk in at 2.58, or in my case, 3.05, right behind the bride. I remember I used to do that. Uh, but you got really good food, so you just went to as many of these things as you could. And, and you, 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 go to, you go to a wedding, and then you have the reception, whatever, and then you, you go home. That's not the way it was. A wedding in this culture, by and large, was there actually was a thing called the betrothal period. Like our engagement, kind of, but it was taken much more seriously. In fact, if you broke a betrothal, you had to get divorced. Remember that passage where, where uh, Mary, Mary, it's not in the Gospel of John, it's in the other, other at, least, at least in Matthew, where Mary is uh, pregnant with Jesus, and it's, it says that they're not married, and Joseph says, I'll divorce her quietly. Okay, that's like, what? Not, not married? Divorce or That's because in order to break one of these engagements, this betrothal, which could last up to a year, you had to get divorced. It was taken that seriously. But you weren't married yet. You weren't living together. You weren't sleeping together. You weren't doing anything like that. So it was taken very seriously. Then, when the betrothal period was up, the, uh, the bridegroom, the groom, would go from his home, presumably if they lived relatively close, and he would start a parade going with his guests to the hometown of the bride. They'd do it at night with big torches, and the whole thing was a big deal. 
Then they'd have the wedding ceremony, usually on a Wednesday if it was uh, their first uh, marriage, and if it was a widow or whatever, it was second marriage, it was on a Thursday. And then the party would last with all the guests, because, you know, it's quite a commitment to go from even just a short ways away in that culture, quite a time. They would party for like a week. Okay, so we don't know when Jesus came. It's somewhere in that period. I don't know if he was there for a ceremony or anything. We're not exactly sure. But it was sometime during the party that he was there, as we're going to see in just a minute. He was invited. His disciples were invited. Wouldn't that be cool to have an, the honor of a request is, you know, Jesus? Uh, yeah, get one of those back. You could put that on eBay. I bet you'd get something for it. Um, now, verse 3. Here's the problem. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, this is a problem, of course. It is a problem because in that culture... The Jews had a phrase. I want to make sure I get it right. The Jews had a phrase, there is no rejoicing save with wine. Okay? So in other words, wine was way much more than, it had a certain alcoholic content to it, of course, but it was just, it was something about like a good cup of coffee. All right? It just, there's, there's just no rejoicing without a good cup of coffee. All right? There. <laughs> now, I'm from the Iron Range, and... Um, Beer is pretty similar. You know, sometimes people overdo it, but, but it's the same thing. I don't want to hear any applause because, uh, you know, that would put people under. But it's kind of the same thing. In, on the Iron Range, if you go to someone's house, the first thing they offer you is, is a beer. And it's kind of the same thing. Wine, I don't even know if they know anything about what that is, you know. What, it costs $3 a bottle. This stuff's expensive. Uh, <laughs> something about entering into someone's house. Or maybe it's just offering somebody a soda or whatever it is. There's something about the fellowship that happens over this this thing. And in this case, it was wine. And yes, it did have an alcohol content to it. Now, it wasn't, they didn't have, uh, like we have distilled spirits, and it wasn't high alcohol content. In fact, it's probably fermented the old-fashioned way. Take grape juice, leave it out in the sun for a month, and then open the bottle. Don't drink the bottom or you're a dead man, you know, kind of a deal. That's probably the way this, this stuff was. When you ran out of wine at a festival, and especially at a wedding, it was intensely rude. It, it was just the worst possible thing. And so Jesus' mother comes to Jesus and says, they have no more wine. Isn't that interesting? That's what she says. Now, i got to confess, I have read this passage for 20 years. And I thought I was going to be able to come to you today and to tell you that I fully understand verses 3 and 4. And i got to be honest with you. I'm going to give you as much as I get. But there's still a lot of it, verse 3 and 4, I don't fully understand. See, see what Mary does here? She doesn't say, they, ha they don't have any more wine. And so what? I mean, so what? Should we leave? Or are you saying I should go buy some? Or what are you saying? Just to say it. Jesus, I think it's a prayer. They don't have any more wine? She comes and she asks him, I think, I think, and she presents the problem, not the solution. Uh, in other words, uh, which I think is a great principle for prayer, uh, present the problem and uh, God will let you do the, the solution to it. I think that's a great way of going about it. They have no more wine. It's a problem. Jesus, Jesus' answer here, the NIV does a, a real nice job of softening it because you can read it out of other versions and it even sounds colder. It says, Dear woman, why do you involve me? 
Okay, now let's just, let's just back up here for a second before we get too harsher. What's going on? Dear woman, why do you involve me? Uh, the, the word there, woman, would be, dear woman is a good way to, if you have your, your own Bible open, it probably says woman because that's what literally it means. But it's, it sounds a lot worse in, in English than it would in the, the ancient language. It's, you know, that's, that's pretty cold to tell someone, anyone, woman, what do you want? Especially if it's your mother. Woman. Don't give my teenagers any uh, fuel there. Woman, what, what do you want? What, why do you involve us? And, and really that phrase there should be translated, uh, what does this have to do, how does this involve you and me? Now, then she, he replies, I want to read it through and then we're going to kind of look at a few things. Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. All right, so first thing is Jesus calls his mother, woman, in the book of John, he never calls her mom. He never calls her Mary. He only calls her woman. You can see in, go to the next one there. One, yeah, go to one more. And one more. There you go. Um, in the end of the Gospel of John, while Jesus is on the cross, and it's a very endearing scene, he looks out, and he says, saw his mother there, and his disciple whom he loved, most people think that was the apostle John himself who wrote this gospel, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And so he's equating the concept mother with, with dear woman, but there is a little bit of a difference. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. So that's where that phrase is used again, dear woman. Now, it's not, so therefore, it's not a harsh phrase, but it is a striking phrase to say to someone. He, he is releasing her of her authority over his life by not calling her mother. I mean, it just, dear woman, I mean, there's now at least, at least a relationship like this happening by using, by using that phrase. Then Jesus says, why do you, how does this involve us? Why are you saying that? Then he says, my time has not yet come. Now, I, I know a lot of you come here and think, great, he's going to explain everything. And some of this stuff, i got to be honest, some of this stuff I'm just not totally satisfied. And I spend time looking at other guys who really don't know either. So uh, I'm not the only uh, idiot here. So go to the next one. We're going to look at this phrase, my time has not yet come. I think from the Gospel of John, it is very clear what that phrase means. He uses that phrase five times in the Gospel, or excuse me, six times in the Gospel of John. There are other times. John 7.30. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. John 8.20. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area or near the place where the offerings are put, yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. John 12.23. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 13.1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in, this, in the world, he had now showed them the full extent of his love. John 17, 1. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. I, it seems to me very clear that the time coming was where Jesus was going to fully reveal who he was. And it was going to be fully revealed at the cross. 
That's when it was going to happen. We're going to see that in John chapter 3, where he says, just like Moses lifted up the snake to be shown, the Son of Man will be lifted up. Okay, so I think it's very, very clear that that's what this time is. And it's his revealing up to that point that is, it's more and more revealing, but this is the time. This is fully the time. Now I'm really open to somebody telling me, how does that fit here? Because <laughs> he says, I, I, why are you bothering me with the wine? My time hasn't come. Why are you bothering the, How does this involve me? I fully will be re revealed at the cross. No. Maybe it just doesn't mean any more than that. I mean, I, I, I have not been able to find anything more. Because the interesting thing, he says, how does this involve me? My time hasn't fully come. And then he goes and he does something about the wine. And you're going to see this thing again when Jesus' brothers say, do you want to go with us to the festival? I think this is John chapter 4. And he says, no, I can't go. No, I'm, my time hasn't, isn't yet here. And then he goes, just right after them. And this, you see this parallel sometimes in the Gospels where Jesus will, they will ask him to do something. They'll say, no, I'm not supposed to do it now. And then he does it just, it seems like, moments later. There's something here about, I'm going to reveal myself, but I'm not going to reveal it fully till that day. And you can even see it in a little bit of the cryptic nature of how this sign, how this sign happens. The time isn't fully come, but I'm going to reveal it a little, a little bit. Okay. The rest of the passage we get. All right, so <laughs> sorry about that. John, let's go back to John chapter 2. His mother says to the servants, and I love this. This is a great phrase. Do whatever he tells you. In other words, He's going to do something here. Now, how she got that from him saying, how does this involve me, dear woman? My time hasn't come. And yet she turns to the servant and said, score, do whatever he tells you to do. <laughs> I don't know, but it's cool, okay? There's something in the white space there, and I wish you could have heard the tone of these. The tone would make so much difference, right? Because if, if, if she says to the servants, oh, do whatever he tells you, as opposed to do whatever he tells you. I mean, there's just tone makes all the difference in the world here, right? So I don't know. And, and the way he says it, he, he could say, ah, oh, dear woman, how, how does that involve us? Dear woman, <laughs> why do you involve me, right? The tone makes all the difference in this, these passages. So somehow it leaves Mary in a position where she comes to the servants and says, something is going to happen. Then the sign, vintage wine from plain old water. John chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So you got these six jugs. Each of them is 20 to 30 gallons or so, you know, roughly. And it's enough in them so that they could wash the hands of all the guests. So they're, they're you know, that'd be a lot of water. Okay, you can pour, pour the water over them or they dip and pour or whatever. And you're, you're able to wash up your hands, not only to make them clean from dirt, but also to ceremoniously do it. So you're going to get some significant amount of water. In other words, if you fill those things, there's enough there for the whole guest list to be washed up. All right. Jesus now says to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they fill them to the brim. An interesting little thing to add, isn't it? So they filled them. They filled them to the brim. 
I got a theory on that. I'll get back to that one. Um, <laughs> it's just totally a theory, though, so, but it's just my thing. So then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants had drawn uh, the water, excuse me, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside. So he pulls the groom aside and he says, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you saved the best till now. Do you get it? So in other words, people have had, they've already had wine. The taste buds are kind of not numbed. Maybe a little bit of alcohol is affecting them. Then you bring out the cheapo stuff. The $1.50 a bottle stuff. $3 first, then $1.50. None of you like wine because you'd know that that's really low. That's a humorous thing I was saying. It's funny. <clears throat> um, <laughs> God, tossed me a bone this morning here. Uh, now, let me back up to that thing I said before. Some people thought it was just an inside joke between Jesus and the, the master of ceremonies. That when he sipped it, it was like, oh, Oh, yeah, that new ink wink. Great wine. Great wine. Good. Nice food coloring. Okay. We're going to see from the result that people had. That makes absolutely, absolutely no sense. Now, let's just do. I, as a chemical engineer for two years, because I'm going to put up these next five slides, I'm going to write off my entire two years of chemical engineering school. Let's just take a look here. This right here, that would be water. Okay? <laughs> the contents of water are, it's like, it's a little bit uh, like Mickey Mouse if you do it the other way. It's at a 55 degree angle. I remember that. Huh? 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 It's got amazing properties. It fills all over the world. If it didn't have some of the properties it would have, do you know that, do you know that, uh, uh, do, do you know this? <laughs> that water is one of the very few things that when it freezes, what happens to ice? floats. It's one of the very few, very few uh, solids that have less density than their liquids. Hmm? <laughs> Just think if it sunk, there would be no fish in Minnesota, huh? Well, there are no really fish in Minnesota anyway, but uh, it, all this stuff, well, the world, life would be very different if water didn't have that property. It's, it's also very uh, sticky, stickiness. Uh, it has a, what's that property called? What's that? It has an adhesion to it, yes, which is an amazing property. Well, let's, let's water do. But the basic chemical formula of water, mm, pretty easy. You got your two H's, you got your O, you got your H2O. Got it, right? That's it. Contents of wine. Looks like that. That's basically wine, okay? Now, every wine is a little bit different. That's your basic understanding of what wine is. And go to the next one. That is the chemical, the chemical reaction and the chemical formula of just simply the color of the wine. All right, forget everything else. That alone is just the color of the wine. Now, here's my, here's my theory. See all those different little benzene rings? Ah, benzene rings. See, I remember that too. It's the little hexagonal thing that goes like that. All right, so all those different things. Go back one. See all that stuff? If you filled it to the brim, there's nowhere to push that stuff in there, right? It's a miracle! (laughs) 
All right, that's what I think. I don't know. Maybe that's pushing it, but there's nowhere else to put all that stuff. If you got the 86% water, you're missing 14% stuff. And there's nowhere to put it if it's filled to the brim. Some guy didn't combine and go, put in the rest of it. It is a miracle. Now, why does Jesus do this? John 2.11, why does he do this? This, the first of his miraculous signs, there were, there's where uh, John even numbers it for us, the first one, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory. You see that? He start, well, he doesn't do it in his full because the time has not fully come, but he starts to unfold it. Turning water into wine is cool, but it's not fully revealing it. And what happens? What's the result of revealed glory? It's, I think it's one of two things. Almost always in Scripture, when God shows himself and miracles happen, one of two things happen. Mocking or believing. Oh, pff, that's a neat trick. I've seen that before. It's in the bottom. There's a guy inside there. It's a midget. And... Or it's a trick ladle that you used, or whatever. I don't know. Or, the way it ends, and the disciples put their faith in him. That's an interesting phrase. These are guys who have already decided that they are going to follow Jesus, right? They're going to follow Jesus. But there's something here that happens when they see this manifested before them. They put their faith in him. Let me ask you the question that we're going to ask a lot through this series. Who do you say that I am? Jesus now starts to reveal his glory. And there's two questions I want to ask us as we think about this. First one is, when, when Mary was faced with a problem, she came to Jesus and stated the problem. Jesus won't have any more wine. What are you asking Jesus Christ for? What are you asking him for? And maybe like Mary, you shouldn't be giving him the solution to your problem. Maybe you should just be presenting the problem, saying, Lord, I've got this problem. You figure it out. I'm not going to pray the solution. I'm going to pray the problem. You figure it out. We don't have any more wine. Second thing is, are you looking for and are you responding to the revelation of Jesus Christ's glory today? He's still revealing his glory. In fact, people in this room who trust in Jesus Christ and your lives are changed, we looked at that last week, you are, you are a reflection of the revealed glory of God. It is amazing. Every life that's been touched by God who's been changed because of being in a relationship with Jesus Christ, that's a revelation of Jesus' glory. Are you looking for and responding to it in such a way that are you either mocking or are you responding in faith and saying, I put my faith in him? Let's close in prayer. Lord, as I think of all the troubles in life, running out of wine at a wedding to me is not one of the most big ones. It's not one of the ones that I'd even put on the top hundred. And yet you used it as your first miraculous sign to show at least those in the know. And we don't know if the master of ceremonies ever got to know or others, but certainly the servants 
and his disciples uh, got to know. And so, Lord God, it is obvious to us that this is not some inside joke because obviously they knew for sure. Lord, I pray for us this morning that we would be people that would be coming to you and laying down the issues of the day, even if they're as little as there's no more milk in the fridge. Can't afford it. Or a health concern. Or a relationship issue. Or going through a tough time in your life personally. Whatever it is. This passage shows that you, we can come to you with anything and nothing is too small. In fact, you love to use the small things to display and reveal your glory like you did here. So Father, I pray for those things in this room right now that we have that might seem like little things. And Lord, you love, you love to have people ask you for them. We're going to move to a time of communion in a minute and there'll be people praying for one another here in this room and we'd ask God, that we would be able to ask you for big things for you to reveal yourself. We want to pray the problem to you. And also, Lord, as we see your work in the world, as we see it in people's changed lives, as we see it in our own life, it is so easy and so American especially to just roll our eyes and give the mocking look. And yet, Father, we want to be like the disciples who put, who poured their faith into you. And so I pray for that. I pray you give us a gift. Give us a gift as individuals and as a church that we would have the gift of pu putting our trust in you when it doesn't seem to make any sense. Would you do that, Lord? For some people in this room, today's the day when you're calling them into a relationship of trust. And you may show them something like water and wine and the issue they're dealing with it seems to be a million times more complicated. And today's the day you're saying to them, will you trust me? So Lord God, would you do that in our lives? Would you open up our hearts to be trusters of you? Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.